Lord, may you bring about healing and transformation and forgiveness and empowerment. May your spirit come in and do us from on high, Father, that as we leave this place, may we, like those early disciples who were in the upper room, left full of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that 2020 will be an amazing year, a year that your will be done and your vision become accomplished in each of our hearts and in our life of our church, community, nation, collectively, in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to a very uh, unused part of the Bible. Thank you. Unused part of the Bible in 1 Chronicles. I know, the part that we probably don't read very often. I will come back to my series on Proverbs, but I wanted to share an opening message at the beginning of the year. I don't know if many of you know this, but my wife Patty is from the state of Vermont. And if you've never been to Vermont, I'll just say that it's a beautiful place. I've been there on a few occasions. We have family members there. We travel to see them once in a while. She grew up in the northern part of the state. But it's not a big state, so we've even traveled down into the southern part of the state. And on a number of occasions, we've been to a place called Bennington, Vermont, which has got a lot of historical significance. If you've ever been to Vermont, there are all these little towns, very quaint, and you have these rustic-looking churches, and most of the churches back in those days when they were first built had cemeteries next door to them. And we still see that in the prairies sometimes, little rural churches, and there's a cemetery plot next door. And we were wandering around Bennington, and we got to this historic, uh, beautiful church, and we're wandering around there, and we were in the cemetery, and, you know, when, I don't know if you ever do this, maybe you guys probably don't do this, but, you know, I've walked through cemeteries, and, you know, it's always neat to read the headstone, and sometimes there's something that's written on it, and unbeknownst to us, we ran into the, uh, the place where Robert Frost was buried. Now, some of you might know who he is. He won four Pulitzer Prizes for poetry, which is quite significant. Four times he won that award. And so he's buried there in Bennington, Vermont. And then I was thinking about all the other people that were there. And how many know they're, they're just people I have no idea. They're not famous. But it's interesting when you go by there, you see the beginning when they were born, whatever date, you know, 1789, passed away in 18-something. And there's usually a little hyphen in between when they were born and when they die. But I think the hyphen is really profound. Because what it represents is all of the, uh, the, the aspirations that people have, you know, all of the disappointments, all of the frustrations, all of the things that make up life, and yet we don't know their story. And we many times forget them. And sometimes I, I th I've thought to myself, I probably couldn't even go back to seven uh, generations in my own family line. I probably don't, I have no idea what these people were like, have no idea their lives you know, I have a little idea just a little ways back, but for most of us, we forget. Isn't that true? We have no concept of what happened before our lives. Now, the reason I'm bringing all of this up today is that there are, I think there are Bible chapters that are almost strangers to us. And I would say First Chronicles is probably one of those areas that when we get to the first at least nine chapters, maybe even 12, we just kind of fly over. I mean, you know why? Because there are a list of genealogies. That just means there are a list of names of this person was born from this person and this person's born from that person. And you start reading chapter after chapter of this stuff and it's not what I call necessarily, you know, highly inspiring. 
And yet the Bible says otherwise. It says that all scripture is given by inspiration from God and is profitable. So what we're gonna do this morning is over take what I call a bird's eye view from chapter five to 10, because inside the genealogies, there's little comments. And sometimes as you read these comments, you begin to get in a picture. But let me just start out by saying that uh, the first, these first chapters, we're gonna look at chapters five to 10. It's interesting in chapter six, we have the listing of a genealogy of the tribe of Levi. Now, Earlier, we had the listing of the tribe of Judah, and then we have afterwards the listing of the tribe of Benjamin. And so I thought it's fascinating that the Levites are put in the center. They're actually in the middle of the three tribes that usually comprise what we would know as the southern uh, tribe called Judah, because Israel split, remember? They were one nation under King David and Solomon, then they divided and they became a southern and a northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom had these three tribes. And that's what the chronicler is focusing in on, particularly these three tribes. And at the center is Levi. Now, I know from reading earlier in the Bible, like in the book of Numbers, you have, you know, God's tribes. There's 12 of them, and they're being led out of Egypt. Remember that? And then they go marching into the wilderness. And then God has detailed description about how each tribe is gonna find its alignment when they're about to move in the wilderness. And once again, the tribe of Levi is in the middle. And you say, why would God put the tribe of Levi in the middle? Well, they were the people that carried the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, the Ark of the Covenant is where the presence of God was. And so the Levites are at the center of the tribes because they represent, I believe, the nature and the presence of Almighty God. God actually wanted to be at the center of the life of Israel. How many say that's an obvious statement? That was God's desire. And I would even apply that to us today, that God wants to be at the center of our lives. How many think that does make sense? He created us, he loves us, he knows us, he has an incredible purpose for us, he has a design for our lives, and God wants to be at the center of our lives. He wants to relate to us, and we have to decide, will we have God at the center of our lives or not? And many of us have made that choice. We say, yes, I want God at the center. But how many have discovered that it's hard to keep him there? Because things crop into our lives, and we find that God gets edged out a little bit. He kind of ends up at the periphery of life. You know, he gets on the outskirts of our lives rather than at the very essence and heart of our lives. And so this morning, I want to talk about how can we keep God at the center of our lives? Because I believe if we do that, 2020 will look differently than 2019. If we can keep God at the center, God says, I will, be, I will show you favor like a shield. If you honor me, God says, I'm going to honor you. So let's take a look from these uh, very obscure verses, and I'll show you some of the things that we can glean out of these chapters that I think are going to be a great encouragement to us. Now, I've already said that the Levites, they didn't have a specific land allotment to them because the Lord was their inheritance. And though they had lands and houses, I mean, they were like cities were designated for them, they had a unique situation. They actually cared for the things of God. And I believe this speaks of the centrality uh, of God in the midst of his people, which is where God wants to be in all of our lives. And I think that's the question we're, being, we're raising today. 
Where is God located in my life? That's the question I'm asking myself. Where is God located in our lives? That's the question we all need to answer. Is he at the center or do we find that we edge him out into our lives and we get caught up with some other challenges and things in our lives? And so I believe the chronicler is challenging us to you know, focus on making this a priority in our lives. Um, now, I think that we could say that God's at the center. I think we want him to be at the center, but I think there's battles going on to keep him from being at the center. There's a spiritual conflict, and we have, I, we have our own sin nature. I'm going to talk about that later that battles that, and I think we also have a lot of temptation. You know, the Bible talks about three things that want to diminish our relationship with God. The world which is the culture that's abandoned God, the flesh, which is speaking of our own sin-filled nature that we have to address in our lives, and then the devil. We have an adversary. So there's a number of factors that battle against us keeping God at the center of our lives, and that eventually allows him to become at the edge of it rather than at the center of it. So here in this genealogical listings, I want to point out a couple of short stories that reveal a couple of challenging obstacles in allowing him to be at the center. In other words, you know, a lot of times we don't even, we're not even aware of it. Why is it that when I want God to be at the center, he's, I still find him at the edge? You know, in other words, how did he even get there? I mean, I made him the Lord of my life, and I had every intention to have God at the center, but somehow he's moving off to the edge. How did that happen in my life? So let's take a look at these things. And I think if we uh, allow this to begin to happen in our lives where God is at the center, you know, and, and part of it is passion. I, I believe that what we do in life is based on our passion. And so a lot of people, you know, say things like, well, I don't have time. And, I, and all, all you're saying when you, ask, you tell me that thing, all you're saying is I have a different priority. Yeah. See, when you say I don't have time, you're really saying I have a different priority. Okay, let's, let's be honest about it. So how can we make God the priority? How does God become the one we become passionate about and we allow him to be at the center because when he's at the center, life works differently. I can guarantee you it's gonna work a lot differently than when you and I are at the center or someone else we allow to be at the center or we allow other things in our lives to be at the center. It, it actually makes our life get off kilter. And uh, we make poor decisions, and it begins to affect our lives in a negative way. So I want to look at these three obstacles I think we need to overcome in order to keep. And I'm not going to say make. I'm going to say keep God. Some of us, God is in our lives. Some of it, God is at the center. Some of we wouldn't even realize that there are things pushing to keep God from being central in our lives. And the first one is how we deal with tragedy. Now that sounds like it's a real strange obstacle, but I believe as I share with you here, you're going to see it. Here in the genealogical listings, we have a tremendous story of challenge, and it's found in chapter 7. So if you, you wouldn't mind turning there, I'm just going to look at this little synopsis of a man who's experiencing incredible challenge in his life. And it says here uh, in verse 20 of chapter 7, it's a man by the name of Ephraim. It says here, the descendants of Ephraim, Shuthalah, Bered his son, Tehath his son, Eladad his son, Tehath his son, Zabdad his son. How many are really inspired right now? <laughs> yeah. Shuthalah his son, Ezer and Iliad were killed by the native-born men of Gath when they went down to seize their livestock. 
Their father Ephraim mourned for them many days. And his relatives came to comfort him. So, I don't know who's going down to do what, but these guys were killed in a raid. Either they were protecting the livestock or they were raiding for livestock. But the point was, they were killed in that situation. The father now is experiencing tremendous grief. And that makes sense. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, losing my children. How That would just tear me up. Wouldn't that tear you? Some of you maybe have had that experience. That has got to be the most painful thing because when you're a parent, you always think you're going to outlive your children. And so it's a very difficult thing to process when your children go before you. That's, that's heartache. And that's a tragedy. That's a great misfortune. And here it says, later on, he made love to his wife again, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And he named him Beriath because there had been misfortune in his family. So what does he do? He names his son Misfortune. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a name that you want to be carrying. You know, hi, Misfortune. You know, <laughs> that's a bad name. Now, you have to understand the Hebrew people named their children names many times to reflect certain things in their life. Now, this was actually very unusual to name your son by a tragic name. Now, it has happened. Remember, Ichabod was the name that was named because Israel's glory, the the ark had been taken. That's a negative name. And Rachel, when she was pregnant and dying, when she had Benjamin, called him Benomi, which means the son of my pain, the son of my death, really, because she lost her life. So Jacob couldn't take that, and he renamed him Benjamin, son of my right hand. You know, he, he just couldn't handle that name. Now, here we see uh, Leslie Allen, who's an Old Testament scholar, says, the perpetuation of mourning in a name is unusual. I agree. There are Hebrew names which attest or declare the end of bereavement, you know. Like when Joseph was uh, in captivity, all that difficult stuff that happened to him in the book of Genesis, and he was sold into slavery and falsely accused, and finally he's risen to be the prime minister, and now he has a child, and his first son, he names him Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. In other words, God has made me to forget my misfortune. That, that's a positive name. How many see that? But you know, I'm really convinced that a lot of us, we are defined many times by what's happened to us in our past. And, I, and this is what I'm going to say today. Some of us in this room, we have been so defined by our past that we are making decisions in the present that are going to affect our future based upon the pain that we've experienced in our past. We've never processed the tragedy and misfortune in our life. And it's really affecting us in the moment. I believe today God wants to bring healing into your life. God wants to release you from being defined by your past. How many say, I would love that, Pastor? I would love to be healed from the pain of my past. I would love to be healed from the things that have occurred to me. And I, I think a number of ways that can happen. One of them is, you know, is that we have to forgive the people who've wounded us. That's huge. That is such an empowering kind of thing in our lives. So we can move forward in our lives. You know, my prayer is that 2020, we will experience greater joy, greater peace, greater hope, greater blessing than ever before because we can move on and not let the past define our lives. Amen? How many say, I want to have a new beginning? 
I don't want to just have a new beginning because it's 2020, but you know, listen, one of the most painful times in the history of Israel is when they went into captivity in Babylon, and uh, Jeremiah is writing a lamentation, but you know what he says in chapter four? In the midst of all of that uh, pain and sorrow and difficulty, but he says, um, great is your faithfulness, new mercy. Every morning I wake up and there are new mercies. Great is your faithfulness. Folks, when you and I can focus in on God's faithfulness and understand that today, this morning, God has a new mercy for me. I wake up with the idea that every morning, God, you have a new mercy for me. How many know that's already giving me a certain mental orientation about my day? I'm looking now in my day, not for the problems, I'm looking for the mercies of God in my day. I'm looking to see how God's mercies are showing up. You say, what are some of those mercies? The fact that you get out of bed, that's a mercy. You know, that you have a measure of health, that you have food to eat, you have maybe a job to go to. I just could go down the list of the mercies of God, and we need to focus in on the good things of God. Uh, now here in First Chronicles, as we've read this, um, he's, he's still locked into his misfortune. What's the natural response to misfortune? We usually get upset. We're usually angry. You know, that's, how many know that's part of the grieving process? You know, we, we suffer loss, we get angry. You know, life has been, we feel cheated. Why did this happen to me? And the first thing we want to do is blame. You know, blame is a very natural response to our difficulties in life. And who do we normally blame right off the get-go? Is God. We blame God because we say, well, why did God let this happen? Why did God allow this to happen in my life? And so God gets a lot of blaming going on and we get discouraged and we're upset and we feel like God somehow doesn't care about us. Why did this happen? And we can go on and on. And we could just, you know, we can, we can also blame the devil. You know, the devil did this to me and the devil did that to me. And I want to just say right now that he's a defeated foe and God only allows certain things to come into our lives. And sometimes we give the devil a foothold or a stronghold, or we make bad decisions, and so we're reaping some of the consequences of our bad choices. So we can blame the devil, but most of the time we blame other people. You know, that jerk, that idiot, you know, why did my spouse leave me? You know, we could go down the list and blame people for all the things they did to me. And, you know, sometimes there's blame to be warranted, but you know what? There's a greater power called forgiveness. And then let's move on to the last person we blame, and it's ourselves. And a lot of times we live with a lot of condemnation, and some of us in this room, we struggle with shame. That's a very powerful thing. You know, if you've ever done something and you have a hard time forgiving yourself, you're dealing with shame in your life. I can't believe I did this. You know, I've had moments where I've battled shame in my life where I said, you know, I couldn't believe I did that. And the problem with that is that we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We're all sinners in this room. And here's what I want to say to you. Maybe you're battling shame today. Can I just say this? God can forgive you. What you need to do is forgive yourself because the enemy wants to keep you down. He doesn't want you to get back up because I am convinced in this room there's a lot of potential for a lot of good, but you've been held down because you've allowed your past failures to keep you there. And we'll get back to that in a few minutes, that idea. You know, now, a lot of times... What we want are answers, you know, like why? Why is this happening to me? Why did this occur? And can I just say that God doesn't feel he needs to give us an answer. 
And so a lot of times we struggle with understanding. That's a big issue in our lives. And so we get discouraged and we start doubting God. And I believe that that's all counterproductive stuff. Let's go back to this verse. I shared it last week, but I think it's an important verse. We have to come to this place where we know that all things God is allowing to happen in our life are going to work for the good. We, we must believe that God is good and he's loving and that there's something going on. And even though I don't understand, that's okay. That's, that's allowed to happen. Job, when he uh, had his great losses in his life, he just basically, you know, began to worship God. He said, you know, naked I came into the world. Basically, you know, I'm going to depart with nothing. The Lord's given, the Lord's taken away. So he sees that God is still in control and he blesses God in spite of the losses. And he did not blame God. That's a very powerful statement. He didn't blame God. And a lot of us, if we've blamed God, God can forgive you. He's, he can handle it. He's been called all kinds of bad stuff. So he gets it. But how do we deal with the questions? I think that's the hardest part. When we find that the things have not worked out as planned or hoped for or dreamed, it brings discouragement and despair and even doubt into our lives. You know, I thought you said this, God. We may not even confess this with our mouths, but our hearts and minds, we feel that God didn't keep his end of the bargain. So we're a little upset with God. We feel like he let us down. So, you know, we kind of question some of his promises. We feel like, you know, I, was, I kept my end. Why didn't you keep your end, God? Uh, our focus, you know, I just put down... You know, we've had some amazing things happen in our church. You know, like we've had people healed, but then other people haven't been healed. And so the people that haven't been healed are probably sitting down going, well, why don't I get healed if that person gets healed? I'm just throwing out how people think, you know. Or why didn't he protect me when this happened? Or why didn't he provide when I needed that? You know, whatever the issue is in our lives, it seems that the testimony of other people's victory sometimes mock us. We wonder if God has favorites in the house, you know. I've heard, listen, I've been a pastor so long, I've heard so much. I know how people think. You know, you, you get all of this stuff coming at you. You know, sometimes uh, we wonder why God's punishing, we, we wonder, is God punishing some? He must be punishing me. You know, why is this happening to me? And we become angry or bitter, we struggle to understand. However, can I just say, this is so powerful. Trust relinquishes the right to understand. See, go back to the book of Job for a minute. God never explained to Job why he did the things he did. He never answered him. Job wanted to put God on trial. Job wanted answers. God says, you know what I'm going to do before I go on, on the witness stand? You're going on the witness stand. So God starts asking him, what about all of these things, Job? If you can answer these questions, I'll answer your questions. Job couldn't answer any of them. You see, God doesn't owe you and I an explanation. That's a really radical thought. When you and I demand an explanation, we're basically saying, God, you're accountable to me. God goes, I'm, account I'm not accountable to my creation. We're accountable to him. And so when God does things, he sometimes does things beyond what you and I could fully grasp or comprehend. And we have to move away from that premise. And I believe that great, it takes great faith. Job came to the place where he said, okay, God, I don't get it, but I'm gonna trust you anyways. Isn't that beautiful? And God did restore him at the end. And we'll get back to that idea in a few minutes. So, you know, have you ever wondered about the way God, things work out? You ever wondered about the way things work out? I, I was just saying, one writer says, it's not what happens to us that's the real issue. It's what's happening in us. You know, so what's, what, have you ever wondered about how things are working out? 
You know, you feel like God's leading you, and then it just becomes disaster. But I want to share a little story. Have you ever felt like you were being led of God, and afterwards, you're just going, I had no idea what's going on in this situation. I, f- I feel disappointed. I feel like God, you, you kind of let, I, th- I really felt you were leading me here, and then all hell broke loose, you know? Like, what in the world's going on? See? Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by whom? Who, did, who was leading Jesus? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Where did he lead Jesus? Into the wilderness, okay? How many go, I've been in wildernesses before. I don't like being led into wildernesses, you know? See, God says, I'm taking you to the promised land, Israel, and he leads them into a wilderness. Is this some kind of a joke? Hello? You ever had that? You know, I really believe God's promising me this, and you start towards the direction God's leading you, and you end up in the wilderness. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? How many have kind of felt like, you know what? I really thought this is what God wanted, but I ended up in a wilderness. How, how many here, that was your experience? Okay, a few of you. Okay, I, see, I got my hand up. Why do I have to experience all these things, Lord? <laughs> I'm just being facetious. Okay. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, why was he led into the wilderness? To be tempted by whom? The devil. How many go, I don't like this, Pastor? You know, you mean God is going to lead me into the wilderness places so that I'm going to be tested and the enemy's going to come against me? Yep. How many go, that's just a, you know, you don't hear that preached every week. But it's, it's here. If you're like Jesus, and by the way, aren't we supposed to be like him? And aren't we, aren't we, aren't we going to develop like him? Aren't we going to have these similar experiences? Yeah, you probably will have these experiences. So, now, this word for tempted, you know, what did I write there? Yeah, I already said that. The word for tempted is perizo, and it is taken from the word to test. And it's to scrutinize, entice, discipline, examine, prove, and tempt. Those are all different ranges of meaning. But I'm going to just say this, that God is going to do this in our lives so that we have to make a choice. Now, don't you? See, you and I can say to somebody, I love you. But that's, that's nice, beautiful. But when people get married, don't, aren't they saying things like, I'm gonna choose to love you above everybody else. And that's all beautiful until it's tested. See, when you get married, you're gonna be married for a long time and you're gonna get tested. What you said Years ago, is I'm going to put you above everybody else, and you're going to get tested on that. Getting real quiet in here. <laughs> See, you can't say to someone, I love you, until you're, when you're tested, then you have to make a choice. And you have to say to yourself, no, I made this decision to love this person above everybody else. Now, every time we're tested in life, we have to make a choice. Do I, when, 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 you know, the word of God says, this is what I want you to do, and then you decide to do something other than what the scriptures say, what you're saying is, I am gonna do what I want more than what God wants me to do. I'm making a choice. See, God says to love me with all of your heart. Doesn't, aren't we supposed to love God with all our heart? And I say, oh yeah, I'm gonna love you with all my heart. I'm gonna put you above everything else, Jesus. 
And Jesus says, These are, this is the boundaries I'm going to give for you so that you can stay healthy. And then you decide, well, yeah, but I want to go do this over here. And then you go do that over here. What you're saying is, God, I, I, I love this more than I love God. How many see the picture? You're saying, I love this more than I love God. So this becomes the new God. Sometimes it's myself. It can be another person. It can be another activity. Whatever it is. I think we have to understand, we're not thinking it like this, but I'm pointing out what we're actually doing. This is how God sees it. So our love, you know, without a choice, we don't have the opportunity to demonstrate faith or love. Our love towards God is expressed by the choices we make. And I'm going to argue very strongly that every one of us make choices every single day based on who is central in our life. Is it God or is it me? Is it God or is it some other thing? You follow what I'm getting at? So this is happening every single day and we need to understand that. <clears throat> See, the choices that I'm making reveals the condition of my heart. That's what's all it's doing. And unless you have a choice, you're not revealing anything. But once the choice is presented, then it's a re revelation of where the true state of your heart is. And that's so important. So how do we respond? You know, there's people who get discouraged. There's people who become dis despair. They, be they give up. They're in hopelessness. Uh, people complain. People blame. People get upset. They get angry. They, you know, all kinds of stuff. But, when, but first of all, we have to come to that place where we recognize, like Job, that everything that we have is a gift from God. We have no entitlements and no rights. See, I, th I think our culture has done us a great disservice. Our culture is in rebellion against God, and all they do is demand their rights. See, when you and I come to Christ, what are we doing is laying aside all of our rights and all of our entitlements, and we're saying, I lay them all aside. You are now the Lord, and you know what? When I do that, God is now central, and I can start maintaining a totally different perspective. Okay, let me move to the second obstacle. First one's difficult, tragedy. I think a lot of people are grieving and they've never addressed with the past and therefore their past is defining their present and their future. We must address our past. We have to let go of the woundedness. We have to allow forgiveness to reign. We have to say, God, I'm giving up all of my rights so I can be free to be able to follow you unencumbered and unhindered. Okay? If you want to walk with God, this is what it takes. Number two, we have to address our own unfaithfulness towards him. Hmm, that's interesting. Because one of the things we have to come to grips with is we've all failed God, right? And we'll get to that verse, but let me go to the New Testament. And I want to say this very strongly, that when you and I come to Christ, something very profound happens. Number one, God's spirit comes inside of you. How many think that's amazing? What am I saying? God himself comes inside of you. You become the temple of God. So the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, how many think this is pretty powerful? The same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead now lives inside of you. You become a brand new person. You're not what you used to be. You're a brand, you have a new power inside of you. And you have a new nature inside of you. All of a sudden, the desire to please God comes inside of you. If you don't have a desire to please God, it's probably because you've never been regenerated by God. You need to say, God, forgive me, 
and give me a new nature. Give me your nature. And all of a sudden, you'll have a desire to please God. So there'll be a conflict between what God wants and what you want. And the Bible says don't grieve the Spirit of God. Just do your own thing. Don't do that. Okay, you have to deal with this faithfulness. Now, I think it's interesting that a lot of the problems we have in our life, we think that, you know, I'm going to say this nicely. We'll go to counseling for a lot of our problems, but unless the counselor is wise and tells us, look, you know, what, what I think some of the counselors are doing is putting responsibility on the wrong people. They're putting responsibility on our parents and other people in our lives rather than showing us that you and I also have a sinful nature and we've got to address that stuff in our lives. And that's when we start getting healthy, when we take responsibility. This is what Paul says. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly or your sinful nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, you can go to a counselor with these kinds of issues, but guess what? You have to take responsibility for the stuff. You can go to a deliverance ministry. Lord, deliver me from the spirit of lust, that evil spirit living inside of me. And they can cast out that all they want to, but it's still going to stay there. Because it's not a demon, folks. It's our sinful nature. And it's telling us here what to do with it. We have to say no to sin. You see, the grace of God is a very empowering thing. Listen to what Paul says. He says, the grace of God teaches me to say no to all worldliness and ungodliness. So you and I can say no to these behaviors. This may be shocking some of you. You know, when we go, well, I'm just powerless to these things. No, I'm saying, no, you're being irresponsible. See, you're not taking this seriously. It says put to death. It means that you have to say, stop feeding this thing. You know, he said, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Now, he's not saying this is a complete list. He's giving you an example, anger. Yeah, well, this is how I grew up. You know, I'm an angry person. You know, whatever, you know, descent that you're from, sometimes people blame it to their nationality. Doesn't fly. It says, get rid of this stuff. You cannot be an angry person you got to deal with that stuff. Because you know what happens when you don't deal with these things like anger or rage or malice or slander or filthy language? It affects your relationships with other people. Come on. And then we go, I don't understand why people don't want to be around me. Well, if you're angry all the time, they don't want to be. If you're lying all the time, don't lie to each other. If you're telling lies all the time or you're gossiping all the time, why would people want to be around you? Can't trust you. You see what I'm getting at? So he's telling us, look, you know, stop blaming other people. Well, my parents, you know, I didn't have any, a good upbringing. Well, that only works so long. When you become a Christian, you can't keep blaming your parents. You know, I could have said, you know, like, listen, I, I, my upbringing was, you know, it was interesting. It's the best word to describe it, you know. I wasn't taught all the right things. I was taught some right things, and I was, you know, by, by action and model, I was taught a lot of wrong things. But I can't blame my mom and dad, you know. I came to faith in Christ. His spirit came inside of me. I started reading the Bible. And I started realizing these things are not, I can't justify them. Well, my dad was like that. Well, so what? I'm not my dad. Okay? We got to stop blaming people for the way we are. We got to take personal responsibility. Say, now I have a new dad. Folks, I have a new dad and he's without sin. 
Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's not talking about sinless perfection, but he's talking about, you know, stop making excuses for bad behavior. That's, I think, what he's talking about. Okay. Now, look what happens here in the Chronicles in chapter 5. But they were unfaithful to the God of their ancestors and prostituted themselves to the gods of the people of the land whom God had uh, destroyed before them. So the very things that had God let the Israelites go in to to take over that land because the people were unfaithful, now God's taken the Israelites out of the land because they copied the sins of the land. What is that telling you? You and I have to be very careful that we do not assimilate into the culture in which we're living in. It says they stirred up the spirit. God did. God allowed this to happen. God created it. God created this problem now. He stirred up the spirit of Pol, king of Assyria, that is, Tegel-Pelezer, king of Assyria, who took the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half a tribe of Manasseh into exile. And they're there till this day, he says. And then we read in 1 Chronicles 9.1, all Israel was listed in the genealogies recorded in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and they were taken captive to Babylon. Here's the southern tribes now, 150 years later, taken into captivity because of their what? Because of their what? Their unfaithfulness. So what is God calling us to? He's calling us to be faithful. And if you're unfaithful, you go into exile. You say, well, why is that a big thing, Pastor? Well, Here's the reason, because when you're in exile in the Old Testament, you're off the land, and the land was where God was. And so now they were removed from God, and I love what the commentator, uh, Leslie Allen, writes. He says, the state of Judah, despite the presence of the temple and its midst as a witness to God and his claims on their life, suffered the unthinkable. Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Theirs was the mental anguish of displaced persons, torn away from their roots, far from home and far from God. Is that powerful? You know, that last statement shakes me up, far from God. Now, let me just say this. Christians can say, well, pastor, God will never leave us nor forsake us. No, but you and I can move a trillion miles away from God, even though he's beside us. See, you can put God at the edge of your life. You can, you can forget all about God. And you can destroy that beautiful relationship. And that's true in all of our lives. We can destroy relationships. And we do that by minimizing sin in our lives. And there's a lot of scriptures I can read. Ecclesiastes 8, uh, 11 talks about people sin or they commit crimes when punishment's not speedily uh, carried out. Or he says, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? What's he saying? Just because God doesn't judge us right away, why, does he, why doesn't God just zap us when we sin? There'd be a lot of dead people. There'd be people dropping like flies, you know, poop, 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 you know? No, he's not gonna do that. So what is he doing? He's being patient with us so we can get our head in the game and go, oh yeah, I did the stupid thing there. Gotta smarten up and get my life back on, on track, right? I'm just pointing it out. He says, God's doing this so that we'll come to the place of repentance. His goodness and his kindness and his forbearance is designed to make us smarten up and realize we've got to get back on the right track. You know? And then he says, his promise is not slow. Eventually he's going to do this. So what are some of the areas that we can be unfaithful to God or not keeping God central in our life? Well, I think the first way, and it's the easiest way, is just a word called Neglect. Do you realize that the number one reason why relationships dissolve is because someone's neglecting someone? Yeah, we just neglect each other. We don't make an effort. It takes work to have a relationship. 
How many realize if you don't work on your relationship, you're going to have problems? Anybody know that? Anybody figure that out yet? That's why the Bible says make every effort to add to your faith these things. It takes, it actually takes effort to have a relationship with God, just like it does every other relationship. It's getting quiet in here. <clears throat> when people tell me they don't have time, I just say, no, what you're telling me is you have a different priority. We all have the same time. Everybody has the same amount of time we all have different priorities. If God is the first priority in your life, it's amazing how you make time. See, I, I get up in the morning realizing I'm just not smart enough and good enough to make it through the day without God. That's how I think. I know I'll get in trouble. Left to myself, I will get in trouble. Doesn't take me long to do it. I have an innate ability to get into trouble. So I need to go to God and say, Lord, I need wisdom and insight and understanding. I need your help today so I don't do something stupid, say something dumb, hurt someone's feelings. It's so easy to do, right? It doesn't take any skill to tear things down. It takes a lot more skill to build them up. I think neglect is a huge issue. You know, one of the reasons why we do prayer and fasting in this church, why do I do that to you? See, even if you don't like fasting and you don't want to fast, still come to the prayer meeting. There's no punishment. I don't know who's fasting or not. That's not, that's not what it's about. It's about taking time out of your busy lives because so often, not only is there neglect, but many times there's, the issue is distractions. We live in a highly distracted culture. How many say that's true? We have a lot of demands on our time and energy and lives. We're distracted by a lot of things. I'm saying take some time out, focus in for three nights on God. It'll really, it'll, it'll affect you in an interesting way. It'll, it'll set a pace for the whole year. That's why we do it in January every year. We want to start the year right. And then about three or four months in, we go, okay, time for a tune-up. Because you know, how many know that we, have a, we easily get distracted and God was, we started really good, but now we're drifting. There's a thing called spiritual drift, so we do a tune-up. Oh yeah, I gotta get back here. And then before long, we have another one. Pastor, you just keep doing these tune-ups. Yeah, because I wanna make sure that you're gonna live a successful life. And we do a little tune-up here and we're seeking God and we, oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta reprioritize. And then Sandra says to me, you know, Pastor, no one's signing up for the 72 hours of prayer. I said, you know, Sandra, just relax. This is Christmas season. There's, their head is not in the game, but they will be today, and I'll remind them. There's a sign-up sheet there. Just put down a time that you'd spend in prayer. And even if the time is already allotted and there's blank spaces, just fill in the time that works best for you. I don't worry about blank spaces. I, I'm more concerned about you engaging. You see what I'm saying? So it's not, this is not legalism, folks. We're trying to help you, you know, pace your life and, and live successfully. I don't, I don't like casualties. Okay, number three, maybe it's an issue of indifference and apathy, and I've already kind of covered this. People who are truly spiritual recognize their own inadequacy and sinful tendency and spiritual poverty apart from Christ. See, I'm, I already know I'm, I'm a mess. If I don't go see Jesus every morning, this could be dangerous during the rest of the day. So I'm just making sure that I get my help to make it through the day. I'm dependent. You know, I was up at 5 o'clock this morning. I was praying at probably 5.30, reading my Bible and praying and trying to prepare my own heart so I could minister to you. You know, I don't have any illusions about what's needed. God is needed in our lives. Let me move to the last one, and I'll just close with this. Having a correct understanding of God's grace. You know, 
I want to just close with this thought. We need to remember God is in the restoration business. Now, can I ask a question? Think about Peter. Peter was a, you know, in the New Testament, the apostle Peter. Look what he did. He denied Jesus how many times? Three. Did Jesus prepare him for that? Oh, yeah, he warned him even. See, I'm warning you, right? But people go, hey, listen, Jesus, I'm Peter. You know, these rest of these guys, yeah, I can see them messing up. Not me. I'll go down fighting. And then the little servant girl goes, weren't you one of those Galileans? Never knew this guy, you know? Isn't it amazing how fast we can mess up? I mean, we have every good intention, but then we mess up. Anybody like me? Anybody like Peter? Now, how many would have said right after that, you know, Jesus comes along and restores Peter? Aren't you glad Jesus restored Peter? How many are you glad? Yeah, Jesus is in the restoration business. Do you know that Peter was more fruitful and effective after he had messed up and was restored than he ever was before? Aren't you glad that God's about restoring? You know, you know this culture today, we're the throwaway culture. You know, we'll just throw it in the garbage. We just take it to the landfill. We'll just give it to Sally Ann or give it to, you know, uh, Value Village. We just chuck everything away, right? And we do that with people. Oh, I don't like that person. They're not being nice to me at this moment. I'll just get a new relationship. We, we're a throwaway people. And yet, I want to just say something. When you value something, you restore it. And I see these guys, you know, they spend sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 restoring a vehicle, Mark. Isn't that true? People do it. I'm just teasing, Mark. People will do it. They love it. This is such a neat vehicle. I'm going to restore it because they value it, right? And how many know when you restore something, it actually even has greater value? Wow. I wanted you to know something. God doesn't throw people away. He's in the restoration business. How many are glad for that? Amen? He's here to restore us this morning. We need to hear that. So we're going to stand as we close this morning. I could have given you the verse in 1 Chronicles 9.2 was really the verse here. They resettled in their own property, in their own towns, and some of the Israelite priests and Levites and servants. In other words, God brought them back into the line. He restored them. And he even brought back some of the northern tribes in with the southern tribes. But some of them were never restored. You know what they were? Assimilated. Do you know this whole thing about the 10 lost tribes of the Jews? There's no 10 lost tribe of the Jews anymore. You know where they are? Assimilated. They were assimilated. So folks, we have to make a decision today. Do we want to be assimilated into the culture? And I'll tell you why Canada is rotting morally. Because the church is being assimilated into the culture. One by one, we're being assimilated in. I got a good illustration for all the Trekkie fans. You're becoming part of the Borg. (laughs) Oh no! That's what's happening. You don't want to be a part of that group, right? No, I want to be God's operator. I want the restorative power of God to work in my life, right? With every head bowed right now, how many here to say this morning, you know, Pastor, as I'm listening to this, maybe my problem is I've experienced so much grief in the past and I'm still camped in my past. That's you. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If you're caught in the past right now, just raise your hand. I want to pray right now. God's going to set you free. Number two, you said, you know what? I've been unfaithful, Lord. 
But today, I want to make Christ central in my life. Maybe that's you this morning. Raise your hand. I want to pray that God will restore you. It's the restoration business. I want to declare to you that if you respond to him today, listen to me, you're going to be better than ever. God loves to restore our lives. You will have a greater life. Even though you may have fallen and failed like Peter, God has more fruitfulness and effective service than you can ever imagine. He can bring greater joy and greater peace. He wants to restore you. And if that's you, just raise your hand. Let God's restorative process work. I'm going to pray right now for you. All the hands. The past has defined you. Your sinfulness has defined you. But today, we're going to pray for a new beginning. This is a new year, but it's more than that. It's recognizing God's work of grace in your soul. Say, Lord, I want a new work of grace. I want the creative act of God to breathe on me. Listen to what happened in the beginning. It says, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was over the waters, and it was brooding. And all of a sudden it said, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be this, and let there be that. And God's creative work started happening. I'm going to pray right now for you that God's creative work will start happening in your hearts. His cleansing work, His creative work will start happening in your lives. Lord, I want to thank you this morning, right now, that you want to do a creative work, a work of grace, a work of power, a work that will enable us to sense your presence in a new way, a refreshing way, a restorative way in our lives, and power to say no to what's wrong and to say yes to what's right to see your grace more fully at work in our lives, to see an amazing new year transpire. And and Lord, that you could use us in ways we could have never imagined just because we came to you in humility and said, Lord, I need you. I want you to be at the center. I don't want to edge you out. I don't want you to be at the periphery of my life. I want you to be at the essence of my being. I pray, help me to, Lord, maintain healthy priority that I will seek your face and I will look to you daily. I will not neglect this relationship with you, but I will develop it. And I will grow this relationship with you. I will come to know you better and better. And then, Lord, that you can use my life in a more significant way. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning. 